We're going to continue with our, with our series, Enemies of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your word to take root within our hearts, our lives. And I pray, Father God, that our eyes will open, our ears will hear, and our hearts will respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've learned a few things in the last couple of weeks. First, we talked about where uh, liberalism comes from. And um, we saw the moment you add an ism at the end of anything, uh, it actually becomes an ideology. Like, for instance, I mentioned you're human, right? Are you a humanist? Do you ascribe to humanism? No. All right, because humanism um, celebrates, lifts man up, and pulls, God's down, pulls God down, is interested only in man's potential. And uh, liberalism comes from the word liber, which is uh, liberty. But the idea here is the moment it becomes, freedom becomes an ideology, as in liberalism, that's the moment um, they are, in fact, saying something other than what we believe. They are talking about, in liberalism, about free thinking. Free thinking. But that is opposed to what we believe because the opposite of liberalism is what? Orthodoxy, right? Orthodoxy. And orthodoxy says... Almost the same thing, but it doesn't say the same thing. It doesn't say you are free to think. You don't have free thinking. You have, in fact, right thinking. Right thinking and free thinking is not the same thing. So we ascribe to orthodoxy, which is right thinking. And as you can make out, of course, liberalism is not just only in uh, political, but liberalism in theology exists. Theological liberalism has done away with all of the miraculous moments that make, that sets Christianity separate and different from all other religions. The incarnation, the atonement, the death of Christ, the erect, uh, uh, resurrection, the ascension, uh, what they've done is they have made all those miracles part of poetry instead of facts, historical facts. They've made it poetry and they've philosophized over those things. Like, for instance, every, every year we um, start the year off by pulpits around the world preaching a message like this. God is doing a new thing. God is doing a new thing. Are you excited about 2024? Because God is doing a new thing. And everybody gets all hyped up. When the Bible talks about God is doing a new thing, He's saying that He's doing a new thing in regards to a new covenant. And He's bringing the Messiah that will initiate this new covenant and you will now be a new creature under a new covenant with new life, and he's not talking about all of your hopes and expectations for 2024, right? So what they've done is they basically just brought Christianity all the way down to eth uh, something ethical. Like, for instance, every Easter you'll hear preachers around the world talk about your dreams coming back to life. 
Your dreams are coming out of those graves. And, and everything, you know, those relationships that have died, God is going to resurrect those relationships. Again, uh, the resurrection was not a philosophical event. The resurrection is a historical event that has spiritual implications. All right, so, so I love somebody like, let's say, Jordan Peterson, except for, unfortunately, this is where he lives, right? Christianity, Christianity is, at its core, ethical. And if you can bring Christianity down to becoming something ethical only, if it's only Jesus is only a good teacher, well then, he's pretty much equal to all other good teachers. Because, because Jainism and all these other religions all, uh, you know, is a call to good ethics. Don't hurt anybody. Don't harm anything. But Christianity is not that. Christianity is much further beyond ethics. There are historical events that took place. The Red Sea opened. And God made a way for the Israelites. <laughs> and and this, is not, this is not a philosophical, spiritual truth that you can import into your business transaction that seems to be going under. <laughs> right. God's not making a way for us that we made a way for us to not have to be destroyed by the very wrath of God. Then, so we understand the difference between free thinking and right thinking. Free thinking has no bounds. People can just think up anything and therefore live there and believe that this is now the new truth. Right thinking is asking the question, what is the truth? And let's submit to it. Free thinking is, I don't care what you say truth is. I'm not, I'm not going to be prescribed to by a book. I'm going to tell you who I believe I am. I went to um, the DMV and I had to get new plates for my car. And I said to the lady, I want to pay with this card. She looked at the card. She says, but you are not Tina. I said, no, that's my wife. She goes, you cannot buy these plates or you cannot pay with that card. You have to pay with another card. I said, I don't have another card. She goes, well, this is not your card. It's Tina's card. So I said, okay, but I, I identify as Tina. <laughs> she goes, that doesn't work. I'm like, it doesn't. It only works when you want it to work, right? <laughs> Then after we studied liberalism, the idea of free thinking with no governors and no boundaries and no criteria for decision making, we went and we, um, what did we learn last week? Do you remember? This is a test. <laughs> All right. What did we learn? Thank you. Secular humanism. Thank you. Why are we studying this? Because the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 5, that you have an enemy. And we see the enemy at work in our world today. And we see the enemy destroying the fiber of our society. Destroying families, destroying marriages, destroying the children. Kids are now mutilating their own bodies 
and they don't need permission from their parent. And guess what? Yeah, now you can have my insurance. My insurance will not pay for me as a man to, be, to, find, uh, to go for hormone balancing. If your hormones are whack, my insurance, by the way, doesn't pay for that. Unless, of course, I need hormone blockers, they will actually pay for that. We just got, we just got it in the mail this week. Co- you know, welcome anybody who needs to go for surgery and receive hormone blockers and have their gender transitioned can actually now uh, get it covered by the insurance. Blue Cross Blue Shield. But when a man needs to go, or a woman, or Tina at this age, we're 51 now, if you need to go and get your, your uh, hormones, no, not, that doesn't cover that. That is liberalism. Now, secular humanism is a little different, but this is another enemy of God that is destroying the, 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 fa- the fabric of our society. And here is what he says we ought to do with these enemies. He has a direct command as to what to do. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against, uh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's why we don't go and burn down buildings. We don't do that kind of stuff. Because it says right here, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So now he introduces this idea of strongholds. It says, casting down arguments in every high thing. Casting down arguments, arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So in other words, there are things that come up against what God already knows. Thoughts that want to overthrow God's thoughts in your mind. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, when these thoughts are introduced, we have to bring in God's truth. How do you overthrow a lie? You introduce the truth. That's how you... The only way to remove darkness in this room is to put light into it. The only way to do away with a lie is to replace it with the truth, God's truth. And so we have to look at these philosophies that have, has infiltrated our society, our schools, our colleges, and now churches, and we have to make sure that these philosophies don't also destroy, come inside, come into the body of Christ like a wolf and destroy the sheep. That's why we are doing what we are doing. Secular humanism defined is secular, remember from the word seculum. It means here and mundus is the other word means now, here and now, over against what? Eternity. So in other words, a secular person believes that this is all we have, science, this is all we have, 
This time is all we have. This space is all we have here and now. This is all we have. So what they do is they live for the here and the now. They never live with eternity in mind. So a secular person denies eternity. They believe that when they die, they're simply going to become compost. And so they do not live before God. They live, they live for themselves, basically, at the end of the day. And humanism basically talks about how man is now able to create his own future. We can now develop, which we have. We can now, we can now maximize our potential, which we are working on. And so down with God and up with man is what secular humanism is all about. <clears throat> Today, however, we're going to discuss the lie of rel relativism. So first lie is liberalism. Liberalism is a lie. Whether it be theological or whether it be political, liberalism is a lie because nobody can just have absolute free thinking and, 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 and be right. Why? Because we are fallen creatures. And if your thoughts are right as a fallen man, then God's thoughts are wrong. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as high as the heaven is above the earth. So much higher is His thoughts than ours. You cannot have no guardrails in your mind and not destroy yourself. So free thinking, free thinking is the thing that destroys people today. That's why people can today, a young boy can now think himself to be a girl. But here's the problem. Thomas Sowell said this way. He said, the problem we have today isn't that Johnny cannot think. The problem is that Johnny believes that he's thinking when in fact he's only feeling. People no longer think. They feel and therefore believe. And so you can't just have free, free thinking and not destroy yourself. So right thinking is important. The second thought that needs to be uh, pulled down is the thought of secular humanism. Yes, there is an eternity. Everything you do today matters forever. And then humanism is, is the problem. The reason humanism has become such a big problem in our churches today where church is all about live your best life now. Churches is all about what can I get? That's why people, when they go church shopping, they look for the church that can offer them the most. They're not looking for the church where they can glorify God the most. They're not even looking for God's truth. They're looking for, to, for a preacher that will affirm everything that they already believe. And so these thoughts have to be pulled down by how? by introducing scriptures regarding them. And today, we're going to talk about the lie of relativism. The, the lie of relativism, as, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about five lies about truth. Five lies about truth. So why is truth important? Because there are real consequences for being wrong. Ask all of those who have already transitioned, they've already gone under the knife, they've already had their hormone blockers, and now they're on TV going like, man, this is... I was young, I was stupid, I wasn't thinking. Now I can't reverse this. You can go search them out. They're everywhere. Why is truth important? Because there are real consequences for being wrong. 
Giving somebody the wrong amount of medication can kill them. Boarding the wrong plane will take you to a place where you do not want to go. As a famous Christian apologist once put it, the fact is, quote, truth matters, especially when you're on the receiving end of a lie. And nowhere is this more important than in the area of faith and religion. Eternity is an awfully long time to be wrong. I was working at Menards and my, and my manager always made fun of me because I'm a preacher. And then I would say to him, but what are you going to do with eternity? He says, I'll, you know, I'll deal with it when I get there. I'll deal with it when I get there. I said, you're an eternal gambler, I said to him. You're gambling with eternity. So for his, for his birthday, I, I bought him from Menards, by the way, because I got discount. I, I bought him two very big um, dice, and I put it on his table. <laughs> So what truth is not is very important for us to know. What truth is not? Truth is not what makes you feel good. Unfortunately, bad news can also be true. Truth is not what the majority says is true. 51% of a group can reach a wrong conclusion. We've seen that many times in history. Truth is not defined by what is intended. Intentions can still be wrong. Truth is not simply what is believed. A lie believed is still a lie. You see, Eve thought, and let me say this, even Eve believed a lie. Didn't make that true, though. So the five lies about truth. The first one is relativism. Relativism. Do you know that it's more difficult to spell accurately when you write on a board? So please, be merciful. Oh, there you go. T-I... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Relativism. This is a lie from hell. Relativism is an enemy of God, as is liberalism, as is secular humanism. Tim Callies defines liberalism, oh, excuse me, relativism as this. Relativism is the view that truth is relative to a particular context and is not absolute. In other words, no absolutes. Boom, God's gone. Truth varies from people to people, time to time, culture to culture, and there are no absolutes. Truth is determined or created rather than discovered or determined. Truth is designed, he meant to say, or created rather than discovered or determined. There are certain things that are relative to individuals, and this is where the confusion comes in. If I had to say, which I believe is true, rugby is a great sport, is that true? Not to you. It's true to me. You see that? You have a truth, I have a truth. I believe rugby is great. Tina does not believe rugby is great. But we both write because those truths are what? Subjective. They are true for us. And even though they're opposing to one another, it's still true for each other individually. 
Both statements are true because of subjectivity. But if I had to say rugby is the most watched sport in the world, if I had to say that, now that is not a subjective statement and therefore it could be wrong. The problem we have is that the idea of subjectivity was imported into areas where it does not fit. It cannot remain consistent. Areas that they imported subjectivity or relativity, excuse me, is into moral relativism, into cultural relativism, and into ethical relativism. The world has many objections to Christianity, and this is the number one objection, is the fact that we believe in absolute truth. We believe God is absolute. He's absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely supreme. He's absolutely holy. He's absolutely righteous. And His Word is absolutely true. Well, they can't deal with that. Because what about moral relativism? Just because you say something is right doesn't mean I believe it's right. Abortion. Just because you believe it's wrong, why, can't I, why, why, why must I believe it's wrong? Moral relativism. In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth. Jesus is the truth in fleshly form. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, The sum of your word is truth. Where do you find truth? The word of God. This is where, in the Reformation, 1517, the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers split ways. Now, the Reformers didn't want to split ways. The Roman Catholic Church excommunicated them and then burnt them. But this is where they split ways. The Roman Catholic Church, let me say this, the Reformers believe that truth is found in Scripture alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola scriptura, according to Scripture alone. According to Scripture alone. That was their tenet. That's what they stood upon. And the Roman Catholic Church says, well, then go away because we don't believe in that. Because they don't believe in sola scriptura by Scripture alone. They believe by Scripture do we find truth? According to tradition do we find truth? And according to the magisterium do we find truth? If the magisterium says it's true, it's true. Okay? Live with it. If we can revise history enough to say that certain things are supposed to be part of your belief system, then so be it. But they determine truth. And they came up with this argument. Well, we are, in fact, an authority over scriptures. And when they said, how can you be an authority over scriptures? They, they said, well, how did you know that it was scriptures until we told you? They said, we told you it was scriptures. And because we say it's scriptures, you believe scriptures to be God's word. But don't forget, we're the ones that told you that it was. We formed scriptures. We decide scriptures. And you get to believe in it. And the reformer said, no, no, no. Not so fast. We don't believe that the church decides what Scripture is. The church never decides what Scripture is. I'll give you a quick peek into Bible school. How do you know? Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is part of Scriptures. Because Jesus taught out of it. That's why you know it. If Jesus saw it as scriptures, wouldn't you see it as scriptures? If it was good enough for him, if he called it scriptures, 
Why don't you call it scriptures? What about the apostles? What did they teach from? So, of course, we can't. The reformers said, no, 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 we know what scriptures are. The books Jesus taught out of, the apostles taught out of. And so the reformers said, no, no, the church doesn't determine the scriptures. It's the scriptures that determines the church. The church didn't birth the scriptures. The scriptures is birthing the church. And there's no higher authority than scriptures. So that's where we find truth. If you think like scriptures, you are thinking like God and you are normal. Everything else is insane. It really is. Everything else destroys lives. But scripture builds life and it keeps you sane. Our modern day culture believes everyone should be free to determine for themselves what truth is. Everyone should be free to determine their own truth and free to determine what's right and wrong for them, says Oprah. Secular humanists believe a Christian's claim of absolute truth takes that freedom away from you. So if you say to me, I'm free to think any way I want, and I come to you and I say, no, no, you have to think the right way. They go like, stop taking my freedoms away from me. <laughs> you see? And that's how they gain steam. Because they convolute the idea with freedom. They convolute freedom as if it's... So in other words, in the same way here, they're saying, secular humanists say they believe that Christians claiming that God is absolute and His Word is absolutely true, well, now you've taken all my freedoms away. I can no longer think anything I want. I can no longer believe what I want. I can no longer be a woman if I want to be a woman. I want to be whatever I want to be. I want to be the creator of my own life. Secular humanism. I am the creator, not you. As a result, the modern-day secular humanists' objection is that absolute truth is their enemy. So how do we respond to that? How do you respond to this idea? Well, you ask the question, what comes first? Truth? Did it come first? Or did freedom come first? Does freedom come from truth? In other words, because you hold on to truth, you are free? Or does truth come from freedom? Because I can think any way I want, I will land in truth. Which came first? Does freedom result in truth? Or does truth result in freedom? I would like to submit to you that freedom comes to the person who actually submits to truth. While freedom flees from the person who suppresses and denies truth. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18... In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Watch this. Who by their unrighteousness, by their unrighteousness, because they are so wicked, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. When they hear the truth of God, they got to suppress it. Because they feel like it's infringing upon their freedoms. I'm free. Stop telling me I can't do what I want to do. Think what I want to think. Be who I want to be. I am the one who creates around here. 
And I'm free to do it. Humanism. People have this idea that freedom is the absence of restriction. I can only be free if there's no restriction. The fewer, the fewer restrictions, the greater freedom I have. I want to give you an example. Imagine for a moment there that a fish claims that he got free from having to live in the water. And now there he is flopping around in the mud on the riverbank. He didn't gain freedom, folks. He lost it. Freedom, freedom only exists for the fish when it submits to what is ultimately true about it. Steve, your freedom lies in the fact that you remain a man. Submit to who God made you to be. Now that's just the most obvious example, but there are many examples. You have to restrict the fish to water so that it can be free to breathe and live to its maximum capacity. No matter what truth claim that fish may have, restriction to water alone is what gives him freedom. Freedom is therefore not the absence of restriction. But let me also say this. It's also not the presence of restriction. People in prison aren't free. So it's not the absence of restriction or the presence of the restriction. Freedom exists when you submit to ultimate truth. Freedom exists when you submit to ultimate truth. John 8, 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word and you, truly, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Watch this. It's not, freedom is not having no restrictions. Freedom is not having many restrictions. Freedom is submission to truth. That's where freedom lives. Do you understand what I'm saying? Where's truth? Scripture. Why does God tell us what He tells, tells us in Scriptures? Why does He give us commands? Why does He tell us what sins are? Because only in submitting ourselves to those truths... Do we find freedom? He says right here, if you abide in my word, in other words, if you submit to my truth, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. Now, what people get wrong here is they think, oh, if I know the truth, I will be set free. No, he says, if you abide in my word, if you submit to what I say, then you will know the truth that sets you free. It is the submission to truth that allows you to know it and be set free by it. So it's not restrictions that gives you freedom. It's not the lack of it. It's a submission to Scripture. How did Eve use moral relativism in her response to the snake? How did Eve use moral relativism? By the way, you cannot go to a public school or a university anywhere where moral relativism isn't championed. You would be called archaic, out of date, if you come up with the idea that there are absolutes and that moral relativism isn't true. So this is not a non-issue. Our whole society is being soaked in this idea 
of moral relativism, an enemy of God. So how did Eve use moral relativism in her response to the snake? Well, the snake presented to Eve a thought contrary to God and introduced it as truth. So here's God's truth, here's a snake's lie, and they say, well, you know what, it's relative. It could be the other way around too. Maybe the snake's true and God's lying. How did Eve use moral relativism in her response to the snake? She saw greater freedom coming from having less restrictions. Yeah, that's true. Why can't I eat from this tree? Eve, questions God, Eve questioned God's truth over against her truth. That's what people do today. They have a truth about themselves, and then they question God's truth about them. Like, no, God, you're not right. I think I'm right. I'm supposed to be a woman. Now let's ask the question, how's the church embraced the theory of relativity? <laughs> I, I was second-guessing if I should put this up, so please forgive me. But uh, how is the church embracing the theory of relativism? Here is a short clip, a minute and 15 seconds, of Jen Johnson. Uh, she's actually a singer. Uh, of Bethel Church with Bill Johnson as the senior pastor. Quickly watch this. Very cringy. But uh, what I want to show you something, the, the statement that was made that caused all of the crazy lies here. Are you ready? Did you hear her say, that's who he is to me? Did you hear her say that? That's who he is to me, relativism. No. You don't get to have him be a certain way to you. You don't get to come up with who he is and what he's like because that's who he is. To, no, no, there's a, the Bible is in a canon. It's closed. God's not in a box, but the canon is in a box. It's closed. That is who he is. It doesn't anywhere say that he's blue. That's Gnosticism. <laughs> I mean, she has literally not counted, I think, eight major heresies 
right in that, in that statement. As you could see, it's not like she one time said it. That was one message she preached over and over again. But the reason that's possible on that stage is because moral relativism has entered the church mainstream. The truth of God's Word is not measured on a sliding scale. It is not subjective to the individual. It doesn't mean multiple things. The Word of God means what it says. It means one thing. And it may have a million applications in your marriage and in your child rearing and in your finances and your health and your relationships and in the way you view the world. It may have multiple, a multitude of applications, but it is one meaning. But not to them. Why? Because they are relativists. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of destruction. So how has relativism destroyed our culture? Simply by allowing people now to each one have their own truth. Apparently gender and sex are now no longer the same thing. If, you have, if you're born as a boy, you have those kind of male parts, well, then that's your sex, but your gender is a social construct. It's a social construct. Turning gender into a social construct makes room for people to turn on God's sovereignty and to turn, turn, overturn God's sovereignty and make themselves sovereign. They now are now the creators of themselves. So the conclusion here is that objective truth is not relative. Objective truth is ultimate, absolute. Objective truth is not a preference. Objective truth is universal. What I'm saying there is when it says that objective truth is universal, it means it's always true for everyone throughout all time, everywhere. No one can see the same truth two different places in a different way. No. Truth is always the same. It's universal. God determines truth. He doesn't change and He cannot lie. Numbers 23.19, Titus 1.2, Hebrews 6.18. Number two, the second thought, the second enemy is consensus theory of truth. Consensus. Yeah. See? I'm just going to say consensus truth. This is a lie, folks. This is a lie from the pit of hell that has come to destroy you, when it comes to, let's say, dating, everybody does it this way. Let us say debt. Everybody has debt. When it goes to, when it goes to let's say, non-committal to church life. Well, nobody goes to church. And so what we do is we look at what everybody's doing and what nobody's doing and we feel very safe because we find our truth from a consensus, the consensus theory of truth. Let's play this out, see if history looks favorably on consensus theory of truth. Do you think, this is a question to you, was it the majority or the minority of Germany, of the people in German, uh, Germany that's that supported Hitler? 
Did he have majority support or minority support? Majority support. Watch this. American historian William D. Rubinstein, he concluded that even under most conservative estimates, Stalin was responsible for the deaths of at least 7 million people. That's about 4.2% of the USSR's total population. Yet to this day, Stalin is still the most revered leader in, in Russia. Can you believe it? He killed, conservatively speaking, 7 million of his own people. Yet, most people in Russia still see him as their greatest leader. How stupid is the consensus theory of truth? Exodus 23 verse 2 says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Well, what's wrong with abortions? People have been having abortions. Everybody says it's okay. Let's vote on it. Well, let's make it a law then. You know, does it become right because it's a law? No, there are many laws that demand you break God's law, and that you may not do. Matthew 7, 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So how does the church compromise with this consensus theory of truth? How does the church become part of this? You see, the politicians decided... While clubs, bars, casinos, and strip clubs are essential, churches are non-essential, and they should close the doors during COVID. The news media echoed verbatim what Dr. Fauci and the politicians added, decided on, and everybody started saying, stay home, protect grandma, don't kill grandma, stay home. You remember that? It was only two years ago. Guess what the church at large believed was true? The media, Dr. Fauci. But did God say to gather? Didn't he say, do not neglect the gathering together of the saints? Isn't that in the Bible? Yes. Yeah. Are we not the ecclesia, the called out? The, we are a publicly called out group. We are a light on a hill. No, no, no. We are, isn't this where sick people come? No, close your doors. And the church said, that's the right thing to do. Love your neighbor. When it comes to the Roman church, I've heard one too many people say after saying, hey, listen, what about this? What about that? What about the other? What about this? Now, how could you, how could you agree to all of these things? Here's what they usually tell me. Are you telling me that over one billion people on earth who are Roman Catholic are in fact wrong? Consensus theory of truth. That is submitting to the consensus theory. Here's a short video by Jeff Durbin. And watch this secular humanist attempt, <laughs> attempt to weasel his way out of their very downfall. If a secular humanist, who's the one who says it's here and now, that's all there is, and humanist, man decides, man decides in his way of discovering truth, what truth really is, and what ethics really is, and what morality really is. Like, is it wrong to kill somebody? Yeah, but what if it's that person's truth? So, watch this quickie. Couldn't be said better. Put it up. Absolutely wrong. Or, but they are, they are technically intersubjectively wrong. So they're not absolutely wrong. 
Um, no. Thank you. So the debate's over, friends. They are intersubjectively wrong. So, so you admit, Mr. Anderson, that they are not absolutely wrong. The Green River Killer is not absolutely wrong. Ted Bundy is not absolutely wrong. Child rapists are not absolutely wrong. And you came to debate that your worldview provides the foundation for ethics. Yes, uh, but the humanist perspective does provide a foundation for ethics because, again, um, rape is wrong. Murder, according is to wrong. According to the cultural conversation that we are all of which a part. That's Did you hear him say, according to the cultural conversation in which we are all part of, according to the con cultural conversation that we are all part of, it is wrong to rape. But if the culture shifts, it would become right. It just depends on what the consensus is. So human, fallen human beings now get to decide what's moral and what's immoral, and God just has to sit up there and zip his lip. So our conclusion here is you always have to ask yourself, where did I get this truth from? Why do I believe this? Did I get this from Scripture? Did I get it from a consensus theory of truth? Is this a relative truth to me? Here's the third one, and they go quick from here on. The third enemy here that we want to deal with is called pragmatism. This is, in fact, also a philosophical concept as to how to discover truth. You discover truth, they say, by allowing it to be relative to you. You discover truth, they say, by taking a vote. Let's see how many believe that's good to rape. Oh, no, it's still a sin. Sorry, it's still wrong, says the man. Or you discover truth by pragmatism. Pragmatism really says if it works for you, then it is your truth. If it works, it is true. The philosophy can be summarized with whatever works. Pragmatism is, um, has infiltrated the church against the knowledge of God. Let's ask how did Eve use pragmatism? Simply by choosing to do what worked or at least what she thought would work for her. <laughs> Didn't she? That's what she did. Like, oh, I can be like him? Well, that'll be fantastic. Let me do it. Pragmatism. That's why you see clubs, you see churches that look like clubs, nightclubs. They do what works for them. They do what brings in the most people, brings in the most money. You and I are to live life not asking what would be best for us what would work for us, but we need to ask the question, what would please God, what would honor God, and what would reflect God's glory? Philippians 2 verse 20 says, I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves. All the others care only for themselves. Number four, we have a fourth enemy of God. It's called skepticism. This is an enemy of God. Skepticism doubts all things to be true. There can be no truth. Those who follow the philosophy of skepticism simply doubt all truth. But is the skeptic skeptical of skepticism is the question. Does he doubt his own truth claim? If so, why pay attention to him at all? Because I'm skeptical about your truth. Called skepticism. 
Skepticism in real time would be the person who always has too many reasons as to why they simply cannot believe scriptures. Let me just tell you, people don't, people don't reject God because they have too many questions. People reject God because they have too much pride. They think they're right and they have all the most important questions. And, by the way, when you go and listen to people's questions, most questions that I hear have been, have been sufficiently answered by biblical apologists over and over and over again. But you always get this guy in college who's been to three classes and now he has a question. You know, skepticism in real time would ask questions like, would say things like, well, you know what? There are too many contradictions in the Bible. Too many contradictions in the Bible. Then you ask him, show me some. Well, there are too many hypocrites in church. You see, the hypocrite goes to church, they say. I say the opposite. I say the hypocrite's the one who doesn't. Because at least us, we believe that we are so broken, <laughs> we're so sinful, we are in such great need. We cannot help ourselves. Therefore, we come to Christ. They, on the other hand, they're so hypocritical, they think like, no, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need your Messiah. I don't need your Savior. What am I supposed to be saved from? From all my good works? <laughs> they say things like, the Bible is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Therefore, it could not be truth. All these are so, they're so old. But anyway, that's skepticism for you right there. How did Eve submit herself to skepticism? She questioned God's character. You see, there's a difference between asking a question and questioning somebody. You see, if, 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 if there was a question, did God not say, you, did God not say that you will die if you eat from this? Yeah, well, let me go ask God, did you say that? Like, ask the question. But he didn't do that, did he? He didn't say, did God, did God say you shouldn't eat it? What was right or wrong? No, he didn't do that. He came and says, did God say you shouldn't? Oh, my goodness, he did say that. You know why he said that? Because he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to hold you down. He wants to keep you back. He wants to restrict you from becoming like he is. And that was an attack on God's character. That was an attack on God's character. That wasn't asking a question. That's questioning. And that is the skeptic, and that's what Eve did. The fifth and final lie, enemy of God, is pluralism. Pluralism. All truth claims are equally valid. Let's all coexist. Everything leads, all roads lead to Rome. All pathways, I remember watching Oprah saying that all pathways lead to the ultimate God. You just got to be a good person. But that's what every single religion believes. Christianity is the only religion that does not believe in moralism. We are not saved by being good. Your morality does not add to your salvation. He saved you when you were his enemy and you couldn't save yourself. 
He saved you because He loved you, not because you were moral. He saved you, and now that He has, He has empowered you with His grace to start living for Him and glorifying Him, and that equals morality. You see? Now suddenly, you start living different because you want to glorify Him, not because you're trying to reach the standard. You do to your wife... You live towards your wife the way you live towards her, not to win her over, but because you love her. Now, winning her over will happen, but the reason you do what you do is because you love. You are driven by your love. Pluralism says all truth claims are equal. Think about this. Pluralism says, quote, It is true that all truth claims are equally valid, and if you have a belief contrary to that, then your belief is false. <laughs> there isn't one of these thoughts that don't absolutely blow themselves up. Relativism, relativism says there's no, absolute, there's no absolute truth. All you do is you ask him, are you absolutely sure about this? <laughs> Pluralism says all truth, all truth claims are equal. You go, I don't believe it. Well, you're wrong, they say. <laughs> this is why our current culture hates monotheism. They hate Christianity who has one God. In John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth. So who represents truth? Jesus. He is truth in the flesh. So what does it mean that He is the truth? Well, He's our source of truth, and He is our point of reference. So what hope do we have for a world so steep in ideologies that raises itself up against the knowledge of God? Let me ask you, okay, what hope do we have now that the world is so saturated with all of these thoughts and ideologies that lifts itself up against God and judges God? Every single one of these judge God. What hope do we have as believers? Well, number one, you have to do spiritual warfare. How do you do spiritual warfare? You learn how to answer these things with Scripture. But what I want to close with is Hebrews 10, 12, and 13. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of eschatology involved here. Watch this. It says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin... For all time. Who's we, who are we talking about? Jesus died on the cross and He made one sacrifice for sin and that one sacrifice was sufficient. That one sacrifice was enough. For who? For how long? For all time. For you, for all time. And then watch what it does. Watch what it says. But having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Who sat down at the right hand of God? Jesus, after He ascended into heaven. He died on the cross, He rose from the dead, and then later He ascended up into heaven, and He sat on the right hand of the Father. That's where He is today. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Doing what? Doing what? Waiting... From that time onward, until now and forever, until His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. 
until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Until all these enemies are made a footstool for his feet. These are his enemies. They have come up against him. They have elevated themselves above the knowledge of God and they are attempting to destroy God in you by planting these seeds in your mind. But these are going to become his footstool. They are going to be conquered. They are being conquered. Some of you today looked at that and thought, you know, I used to think like that and I realized it's wrong. Oh, I used to have that thought and I guess, wow, when did I buy into that? I don't even know. Probably when you were in school, probably when you went to college, probably when you turned on Joel, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Furtick. That's probably when that happened. But my point is just you see this and you go like, I've got to change. Guess what? Spiritual warfare just took place. Strongholds just came down. And now you're starting to think clearer. Clearer. You're starting to see things from a scriptural perspective, from God's perspective, instead of from the lie. And here it says that he sits on the right hand of God waiting from that time of the resurrection until uh, time onwards, from that time until time onwards, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. We will win this war. This war, this battle will be won. And God is calling you to pull down strongholds. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you open our hearts, you open our our eyes and our ears and our minds that we will see this hope to which you've called us in Jesus' name.